Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, president and editor-in-chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. And I'm joined by my colleague, Sarah Jervin. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Raj. It's, it's great to join you. Yeah, good, good to be with you, too. Um, Sarah is, of course, a senior reporter here at DevX, and you all know her byline uh, for covering all things global health. And Sarah, you're based in Nairobi. I'm assuming uh, you're around there today? Yes. Yep. I'm just an hour behind you guys in Dubai. Yeah. And as you say, I'm here in Dubai with many fellow DevXers uh, covering, of course, COP28. And uh, that's a lot of what we're going to talk about today because, of course, COP is uh, the big headline and story in global development this week. And uh, it's great to get a chance to, to speak with you about it, Sarah. I know you've been covering one aspect of it in particular, which is the health aspect this is the first year that there's been a an entire day dedicated to global health at COP. Um, what do you think is the implication of that? How significant is it? Yeah. Um, so health has been long excluded from high level discussions on climate change. And so this was the first COP where health was formally on the agenda. Um, and this included the first climate and health ministerial meeting. So over 130 countries have endorsed the first uh, COP political declaration for climate and health, um, where leaders really stress the importance of addressing the negative health impacts from climate change in the context of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and the Paris Agreement. Um, but there are also uh, theme days at the COP conferences and uh, in the past and as well as this year this has included days focused on climate finance and food security for example um, but this past Sunday was the first time there was a day of programming that was actually devoted to health um, so the cop presidency has tallied that financial commitments out of COP uh, for climate and health have reached over 2.7 billion. Um, but there are questions over how much of this is new funding. Uh, and historically, the situation has been that very little multilateral climate finance has gone towards health. Um, but there is an urgent need for, for action and resources as a lot of health gains are threatened as climate change accelerates. Um, that includes an uptick in infectious diseases. And one example of this is, is cholera. Um, and that has become supercharged by climate change in Africa. And, and we've been covering that uh, over the past year. Um, our outbreaks are becoming uh, more common and more deadly. Yeah, it's, it's so fascinating to think about kind of where COP plays a role on, on how issues like global health uh, roll out, how they get funded, how they change politically in terms of their policies. And we had Alok Sharma on stage. I just came off the stage here at our Climate Plus event where I was interviewing him. Of course, Alok was the president of COP26 in Glasgow. And, and he gave as an example of how COPs kind of function and actually make real impact in the real world, um, the example of loss and damage, which was raised in Glasgow, was advanced further in Sharm el-Sheikh last year and then this year, we actually have a real loss and damage fund. 
um, you know, it was created last year in concept, but this year it was actually created in reality and funded. Um, now it's all very early, it's baby steps. There's plenty of good reasons why campaigners and activists say this is way too little too late. But I think it does point to how a cop process can can actually make an issue move down the track. And so the same is what I'm hearing from, from people in the global health space, that this is kind of a watershed moment, even if, as you say, Sarah, it's unclear if there's really new money at stake here. Um, just the fact that so many countries have come together and said you know, there is a really important connection and nexus between climate and health is the start of something. And it does feel like it's also a narrative shift because for a long time, people in global health have said, well, yeah, climate is sort of a vertical. You know, it's just, there's a set of issues associated with climate. As you say, cholera is one example, some, you know, mosquito-borne diseases uh, where mosquitoes are moving due to new climate um, shifts. You know, that's another. But in general, you know, global health uh, doesn't connect with climate in every way. And I think that narrative is starting to be challenged uh, here at COP and I think more broadly. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was a big step for uh, WHO to appoint Vanessa Carey as the, the new kind of envoy on climate and health. It's really, I mean, it's a, it's a very different situation from it was uh, one year ago. And as you said, with the loss and damage fund, I think, um, yeah, we were both in attendance at Sharm el-Sheikh last year. And I think uh, no one could really kind of foresee that in in one year there would be a loss in fund um, uh uh, loss and damage fund actually kind of coming into being. I think there was still so many, so many questions uh, last year at Sharm about uh, what the future held with that. Yeah, and even that fund, of course, you know, just to be to be clear, it's small. Uh, we're in the several hundred millions now. The last number I heard from somebody close to the negotiations was about six hundred million has been pledged. But you know, Lok Sharma said this morning in my conversation with him on stage that. You know, there is there are so many pledges and there's so little accountability around them. What I like to term pledge inflation. It's very easy to come to Dubai and to claim a pledge. But over time, you know, when we, we know when you go back and look at how much was actually given against that pledge in general, the numbers fall far short. And Sharma said, you know, something they quoted a study that showed something like half of all pledges uh, are not met. So, you know, this, there's, there's a long way to go yet. But just the fact, as you say, that the fund exists after very contentious negotiations that we've covered at DevX, you know, it is now a, a trust fund set up at the World Bank. So there's a mechanism and uh, that fund will have some real money in it. It looks like at least some of the funding uh, that has been pledged is real and new. It's a little unclear um, whether all of it is new, but but some of it seems to be new. So, you know, we're, we're, we're making some real progress, at least on that point. And it was a you know, probably for the organizers of this COP, um, you know, uh, Sultan Al-Jabbar and the, the, the UAE government, it was kind of a shot in the arm to have that as the as the starting point of this this year's COP. How do you think overall, Sarah, as you've been watching this from afar, how do you feel like this year's COP is rolling out? Well, it does seem, um, I mean, it, as we spoke about with the, the health aspect, it's it has been a COP for first. And I think uh, the big top line question is, will this COP produce the first global agreement to phase out fossil fuel use? Um, so th that's still yet to be determined. But another thing we covered 
at DevEx was kind of the link between climate and conflict. Uh, more than 70 countries and 40 international and humanitarian organizations uh, joined a declaration on climate relief, recovery, and peace. Uh, so that's the first initiative to elevate climate security and humanitarian action to this very top level at the UN talks. Um, so, so it is a year of firsts in some ways, and I think that um, that that shows progress. Are you interested in the intersection of business and social impact? Do you want to know how corporate sustainability, ESG, impact investing, and more can contribute to development finance? My name is Adva Saldinger. I'm a senior reporter at DevEx, and I've been reporting on these issues for nearly a decade. I'm the author of DevEx Invested, our free weekly newsletter dedicated to development finance. Every Tuesday, we explore how companies, investors, and market mechanisms are reshaping the world of development finance. Visit devex.com slash newsletters and join us on Tuesdays. We're joined by our friend, James Mwangi. Uh, thanks for joining. And I'd love to just get your overall take on how you think this year's COP is going. I, I I I think the thing that has blown me away, and, and, and you know, I'm 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 coming in straight out of uh, a sort of conversations is what what I found hugely useful. Or one observation is that a lot of people from a lot of different parts of the climate ecosystem are all here. There's probably more of that ecosystem co-located than has ever been the case. In terms of this year's COP being different, I mean, you talked about it as a COP for first, Sarah. This is also the first year there's a focus on food. You know, which is responsible for agriculture, responsible for a third of, of carbon emissions. So it's a big deal that there's a food day. Um, there's also a transport day. So in a lot of ways, and this is you know emblematic of our summit, which we've called Climate Plus. In a lot of ways, all of the various categories, you know, vertical areas within global development, all the sectors seem to be present at this year's COP. And so adaptation, you know, which has been kind of a kind of a second tier issue compared to mitigation at COPS in, in the past, in some ways has been elevated. Um, although there's some bad news on adaptation, which is, you know, the funding for it has actually gone down this year. So it's not as though it's all a pretty picture, but it seems like this year's COP has really embraced the nexus of climate and development in a bigger way than it has before on health, on food, on transport, and on many other issues. And, um, and you can see that there's more and more political momentum to understand that these areas are not divorced from the broader climate conversation. Would you agree with that, Sarah? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, yeah, you make a very good point that uh, uh, for so long, these com- uh, these conversations around climate have been so siloed and leaving out such critical. I mean, it's it's uh, amazing and stark <laughs> that, you know, uh, food security and health haven't been at the center of the conversations for years. So I think... Um, really uh, having discussions that are integrated and cross-sectorial is really, really critical. And I think um, that's huge. And as James said, that it's a huge ecosystem kind of event and um, really ensuring that there's cross-collaboration and discussions and networking happening at, at, at this COP is, is going to be key. Yeah, and I think COPs, you know, and, and James, I'd love to get your take on kind of what is a COP, you know, because there's the climate negotiations that are still ongoing and they're going to be fraught right to the final moment. But then there's also what I think you were getting at, which is, you know, all of the sideline conversations, including organizations like yours, Africa Climate Ventures, that are out there trying to raise funds and find projects, you know, where real deals, real initiatives, real partnerships are 
getting formed here. I've been struck by the ways in which this is uh, this has felt like a venue to plan implementation. Uh, in parallel with the conversations about raising ambition and making new commitments. And in that first area, that, 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 you know, that thinking about what comes next, who you partner with, how you invest together and so on, I've just seen a lot more happening, a wider array of folks coming in with a wider array of tools, resources, innovations, and so on, than I remember from, 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 from previous COPs. And that's exciting independent of whether we are able to ratchet up the ambition, which we definitely should, in the negotiations. Right. And the key issue, as I think Sarah mentioned before you joined, James, seems to be whether the negotiations will land on this controversial point of phasing out fossil fuels. And Alok Sharma, who was the COP26 president and tried to do this uh, around coal and failed, um, you know, he was just on stage with me here at Climate Plus saying, that's kind of the key issue. Can we get to countries, including the one we're in right now, the UAE, which sort of in a way, as he says, is better positioned than anyone to get to agreement on this point? Can we get to countries agreeing, you know, at least on paper, at least in principle, that we've got to phase out fossil fuels? So even if it's a very long runway, you know, with all the caveats you can imagine um, that countries might require, at least getting that on paper in his mind and in the mind of many people here is the key to this being seen as a cop that was actually consequential. Yeah, I, I agree with the importance of that. And I think all of us keep our fingers crossed that the the balance of the negotiating pressures end up there. Um, I think in parallel, there is crucial work to be done. In a sense, that's a supply side conversation. And what commitments are we making on the supply of fossil fuels? On the demand side, there's a lot of work to be done in saying, and here are the ways that we can deliver prosperity, dignified livelihoods, actually better outcomes um, without reliance on fossil fuels. And that's that's where I've been spending a lot of time just talking to people with new solutions, new technologies, new ways of thinking about these these, these spaces. And, you know, I, as you'll know, a big part of what I've been pushing for is how do you get particularly African countries to see the opportunity for them in that kind of post-fossil fuel reliant planet where arguably countries of the global south have a bigger opportunity than they do in the current ecosystem. And, and, and seeing that land with commercial actors and some uh, non-commercial actors is, is exciting. Uh, it's still a journey. A lot of people still think of this as a sacrifice. We're giving up fossil fuels, which will cost us something. And I do actually think that it's becoming clear as you look at where the technologies are going, where the financing models are going, it could actually be better on all levels to move to a, a low emission or even negative emission set of solutions in some sectors at least. Yeah, I think it should be, right? And maybe it's worth kind of rolling that out a little bit, explaining it a bit further. Because in the case of Africa, you know, this is not about a transition, right? This is for many people, there's some 650 million people in the world without access to electricity, and many of them are in Africa. So, you know, for, for many people, it's not a transition away from one kind of fuel to another. It's the first time they're going to get, you know, electricity in their homes or in their businesses. And so it's really about starting from zero. And so there's a chance to leapfrog an old and dirty and inefficient model of energy production. And, uh, there, you know, the, the COP has already achieved this idea of a tripling of renewables. That seems to be clearly on the table. But in, in parts of Africa, tripling is nothing. It's going to be much bigger than that, right? Because you're going from, yeah. from zero to building huge wind and, 
and solar yeah. facilities, and geothermal and others. So the opportunity yeah. is massive. And and uh, and as you well know, James, it's not just about you know having the production of energy, which is important, but it's also the, the nature of renewables, which is that they can be really distributed, including in rural yeah. areas. Yeah. Right. Microgrid yeah. technology. You can kind of you can kind of uh, use these technologies to empower all kinds of economic development and yeah. health and education and agriculture in a way that is a lot harder to do through traditional fossil fuel. I, I think that's true. Uh, and, and I think one part of that equation, I think, is now almost conventional wisdom, which is distributed renewables is a way that you will meet the needs for of the bulk of Africa's own domestic energy consumption for domestic livelihoods. I think something that's been really exciting since the Africa Climate Summit was has been the recognition of this other other side of what renewables do, which is they unlock the potential for what we call climate positive growth, which is if we're going to triple uh, the world's supply of renewable energy infrastructure, like the panels and wind turbines and so on, one of the interesting things about that is that even for industrial purposes, if you wanted to maximize the amount of energy you got per unit of solar panel and battery or wind that you deployed, the best place in the world, the place where you get the biggest gigawatts or, or kilowatt uh, per, per dollar spent impact is going to be in Africa and other parts of the global south because tropical real estate is the prime place to allocate your solar infrastructure. Now that has some interesting implications, Raj. It means that for energy intensive industry, actually what you should be asking yourself is why not move a larger share of that to those parts of the world? Africa today accounts for less than 5%, probably less than 4% of global value added industrial activity. Just moving that to 10, 15, 20% is one of the biggest decarbonizing moves the world can make because that could end up being powered by a disproportionate share. So we're not saying triple everywhere and so triple the number of solar panels in Belgium, that does not make sense. A, you've already put a lot of solar panels in Belgium, and frankly, you're getting relatively little energy per additional solar panel you're putting there. Tripling the amount of solar panels in the world and having almost all of that increase happen in Tanzania is transformative for the global energy system because it suddenly cuts the cost of actually doing energy-heavy processing of raw materials in Africa by a factor and decarbonizes those entire value chains. So it's about saying it's not just about, well, all of us are changing the way our industries work, but the industry will say where they are. And by the way, we'll help Africans meet their needs wherever they are with distributed solar. It's also about saying we need to do things like the smelting of, and processing of critical minerals, the generation of value added industry, the positioning of our global data center demand as we you know, go into the AI revolution, we need to be thinking about all that from the perspective of where is renewable energy most abundant and thus where should we be citing these major new investments? Yeah, just to put a couple of numbers behind that, you know, 60% of the best you know, global solar potential is in Africa. And then 40% of the strategic minerals that are needed for decarbonization are found on the African continent. So it's where the critical minerals are it's where, as you say, the solar potential is. And then one important piece as well, it's where the labor of the future is. And it's going to be, I think by 2050, a majority of the world's young people will be in Africa. So this is the place where if you can get a lot of things right, and there's a long way to go to get those things right. But if you can get them right, you could see, as you say, the most labor intensive and energy intensive industries 
wanting to locate on the continent of Africa, which I think for your venture fund and for so many others who are working in this space would be an enormous shift. Sarah, I want to I want to come to you uh, as we're getting close, baby, to wrapping up our conversation here. Uh, I wonder if there's any other um, observations you've got from from where you stand. I know you spent uh, a lot of reporting time in the past in Somalia, and we had a story uh, this week exactly on the climate nexus with Somalia, which is that you know this is a country that's you know not responsible for emissions at all. I think it's second to the last in the world, and yet is suffering pretty dire climate conditions. Yeah, absolutely. I think Somalia is a really important country to keep an eye on. Um, The government is working really hard to change its face to the global donor community. Um, Somalia has long struggled to access climate finance, and that's because of insecurity, um, inadequate government capacity, and then a massive debt load. Um, but this, the country is working to strengthen its, its institutions and it's been in the process of reducing its debt load. And then in turn, it is uh, working to receive greater climate financing uh, so that it can build resilience, um, resilient systems to extreme weather. Um, so the, the country has faced recurrent drought and famine was recently averted. But it's an ongoing problem, and uh, even when the rains do come, they come in the form of these devastating floods. Um, So there's huge displacement across uh, the country, and it's preventing um, this extreme weather is preventing um, people from working as farmers or pastoralists. Um, And people are kind of turning to displacement camps in urban areas where they're largely dependent on aid. So it's this really unsustainable situation. Um, And in terms of money flowing into Somalia, there's often more of a focus on humanitarian response uh, rather than long-term development. Uh, So our colleague, uh, Colin Lynch, reported last week on an internal confidential UN report that said that there needs to be a quantum leap in climate financing uh, to Somalia to mitigate and adapt to impacts of climate change. And in the long run, Famine in the country can only be prevented by including genuinely transformative climate action. Um, and, and Somalia is not alone. Uh, fragile countries struggle to receive climate finance, but these are the countries where there is really huge need. And in Somalia, it's need like uh, needs for uh, building of water infrastructure, strong systems for early warning for extreme weather, and there's a need for mapping groundwater. Um, And the country has also talked about its aspirations to be a source of uh, carbon offset projects uh, from polluting regions such as its neighbors in the Gulf state. Um, So I attended COP27 last year and met with the Somali delegation um, while I was there. And they uh, they had their largest delegation in history last year. And the government in um, recent years appointed its first minister of environment and climate change. So it's definitely an interesting country to watch in the years ahead uh, to see if the government's efforts are kind of successful in reining in uh, additional climate finance. Yeah, it's a great example. And maybe we can kind of wrap up on this point, James, of where, you know, we've long had this divide between development funding and humanitarian funding. They've lived in these silos. and We've talked forever about the development humanitarian nexus and, you know, how do we somehow bridge this gap? And then before we ever really get there, along comes climate. 
And then you, you look at a story like this one from Column and you think about Somalia and you think about, well, maybe we really need a new way of even thinking about these problems and not putting them into one silo or another. And of course, of funding them. You, James, you've got a long history in this space. You know, you led Dahlberg, you know, the donor community well, you know how we tend to find ourselves in, in different silos as an industry. Do you feel like the climate discussions you hear at COP and now that you're in the climate space more specifically, is it starting to bridge these, these gaps? Is there a new way that maybe, yeah. maybe even development humanitarian itself sort of gets renamed and it's all climate eventually? I think there's certainly a, a, a growing recognition of the scale of the game changer that the rising effects of the climate crisis and the imperatives of climate action are going to be. So this is this is big. This is not just one among multiple SDGs or whatever. Everyone needs to have a response. And you're seeing that now with all of the different angles being pursued. I think the thing that happens next once people appreciate how far reaching the impacts of climate already are and will be is they recognize just the sheer scale of a resource transition that's needed, which is, which almost trivializes the entire global development budget, right? It's, it's a rounding error on the back of what's needed. But also, I think the, the, the next phase of the, of the journey I think we need to be on is to recognize that it's big numbers, but it's the big numbers that we spend every day, that, that this is a transformation of the entire global economy. And thus, you can't really separate out, okay, this is development, this is humanitarian, this is government spend, this is philanthropic, oh, and here's the commercial world over here. You actually have to think about how each one of those triggers the next one, because the real numbers are going to be in the trillions or the tens of trillions over the next, over the remainder of the century. And so we need to be thinking in, in systems terms. And what is the catalytic role of admittedly modest sums that sit in the developmental world in setting off certain virtuous cycles? If you can't set off a virtuous cycle, you can't really bend the curve on this because you're not going to be able to just by sheer injection of, of passive capital lift people above the climate crisis. It's not possible. You're going to need to build or invest in building better systems that in themselves kind of begin to address the issue and have the resilience that we need to see. And that's a different way of yeah. thinking for the entire development ecosystem. It really is. And, and maybe a story from COP as we wrap up here that's emblematic of it is I got to meet yesterday OKSA, who is the CEO and founder of uh, Power Stoves, which I think is the largest cook stove company now, certainly in Nigeria, maybe on the continent. Um, you know, they produce tens of thousands of cook stoves every month. And you know, I think about what he's done. These are clean cook stoves are smokeless, right? They use wood pellets. They manufacture those wood pellets and ship them all over the world. And now you can charge your cell phone in that cook stove. And there are sensors in it so they can detect, you know, how much carbon emissions are being saved. And they can sell those carbon credits on the global market and therefore lower the cost of the cook stove and make it close to free and actually build a profitable business on the back of this. So you know, he's gotten money from donors, traditional development donors. His product is useful even in humanitarian situations, right, where people don't have access to their homes or their refugees. And it's a climate solution. Is it for profit or nonprofit, right? Where does it sit exactly? And I think there's so many examples like this here at COP, which is one of the things that's inspiring about it, that some of these old traditional barriers are being broken down and we're finding 
finding new ways that just leverage all of the resources in the world to confront what is obviously the biggest global challenge. So I thought I'd end this with that little story. Uh, it's been great to talk to you, James, and uh, and to you, Sarah. Thanks for being a part of this. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, thanks so much. It was great to chat with you both. This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.